Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. It's super helpful for us to recognize so many of the things we see each day and we take for granted as identifying them correctly, because until we can properly distinguish between them, everything may look like news when it's not. Determining the truth is something that's always been part of the reporter's job. But with bad actors employing sophisticated marketing techniques, separating truth from fabrication, and identifying manipulation, and reporting the truth has never been more difficult. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Samuel Chris Spitali is a media studies expert who has written for the Huffington Post in addition to Geek Magazine and Advocate.com. He previously worked in global product development at Lucasfilm Limited and wrote Star Wars Collecting a Galaxy. As tempting as it might be to geek out about Star Wars, this is a journalism podcast after all. Chris is also the author of How to Win the War on Truth, an illustrated guide to how mistruths are sold, why they stick, and how to reclaim reality. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. We did talk a little bit about Star Wars before we got going, but you seem like you had a, a pretty interesting path to this point, to this book. You know, how do you go from Star Wars to media studies to examining this the post-truth world that we live in? Well, Star Wars is my first love, but my degrees are in mass communication. So I went to the Manship School of Mass Communication at LSU which is Louisiana State University, where I studied advertising, minored in psychology, and then pursued a master's degree in media management. While I was in graduate school, I interned in public relations at Lucasfilm and was very fortunate to get a job in the licensing division right after grad school. So licensing and product development had always been an interest of mine, but as I got older, my interests began to change a bit as the world we lived in began to change. So I left Lucasfilm in 2014 to focus on my own projects, film and TV scripts, which were more story driven. But the thing about storytelling, you know, it's sort of a fictionalized form of journalism. Both are concerned with getting to the truth at the heart of the human experience. They just go about it in very different ways. The more I started, you know, working on my own stories, the more I started, yeah, kind of rekindling my interest and uh, passion for journalism as well. So you left there in about 2014. You know, 2016, for a lot of people, that's kind of like, I don't know if that they that's necessarily when the world changed, but I think that's when a lot of people sort of stood up and said, what's going on here? How closely were you following what was going on in the online environment at that point? I don't know if I was following online as much as just what was happening, you know, domestically, like just with the election and with everything. 2016 was definitely a turning point for me where I felt the pull of journalism. Like there was so much BS during that election cycle and that year, which to me, and I feel like most of the creatives, like I know it was so blatantly obvious, you know, like it was just so obvious he was so full of BS and nothing out of his mouth was true and accurate. It was just, yeah, it was just all nonsense. But the more as the year went on and after the election, the more I talked to friends and family back home in Louisiana, where I grew up the more I realized just how many people believe stuff that simply wasn't true. They couldn't see through all the BS and facts just bounced off their barriers of belief. Like, and I couldn't stop thinking, you know, how do you puncture that barrier? Like, 
how far back do you have to step to help people see stuff? And, you know, there's a great analogy about how we perceive the world and how it actually is. There was like a German biologist who noted how like each animal experiences a very limited environment, you know, to the fish, their entire world is like water, it's the ocean. And, you know, like a field mouse perceives the world as a patch of grass, but the world is a lot more than that. You know, oceans, deserts, mountains, it's the entire surface of the planet. And information kind of operates the same way. You know, you get the information in your own environment as it applies to your environment, but the rest of the world is is bigger. And so, you know, how we see the world working around us, whether it's an accurate assessment or not, versus how the world actually works. So, you know, between information silos and objective reality. And so a lot of that involves understanding, you know, how the information systems work and how they're exploited to make us believe things that aren't true and who benefits by doing this. And so, yeah, I just kind of kept kept on this thought, trying to figure out, and you know, it was a multi-pronged approach, but but that's kind of yeah, how I ended up on the journey for the book. It came out of many conversations with many people, and I was not getting through to them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was the beginning of I think something a lot of us, not just people in journalism or, or people who pay attention to media, but anybody who is at all concerned about you know, any social issue, any political issue. And it's kind of been what we've been enduring since 2000, you know, primarily since 2016, at least I guess collectively we understood it as 2016. But, you know, things like this don't happen overnight. They're not, it's not necessarily one campaign. This is sort of the development of how the, you know, the ecosystem of news and communications had been changing. Yeah, no, I totally agree. No, it was something I was, you know, noticing and tracking and paying attention to for years before. It's just that, you know, I guess 2016 was more of the tipping point. Well, yeah. And people forget that Obama actually both in, I guess, uh, 2008 and 2012 got a lot of credit for you know his campaign being very savvy when it came to social media. And they were winning a lot of battles there in getting their message out and reaching certain groups. And so, you know, after those elections, there was this kind of, you know, in the, in the media space, there were people like, oh, this is interesting. You know, people who are, are figuring out better ways to use social, and this is back when everybody thought social media was, you know, gonna change the the world for good. Right, <laughs> but, the force for good, yeah. Yeah, 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 Arab Spring, yeah, et cetera. Exactly. But <laughs> as, we, as we sort of said here, things kind of changed our, our perception of how people were, Consuming the news. I mean, this is a topic that we've talked about on and off since 2016 on this podcast. We have many guests talking about many different aspects of it. I saw that you've been doing this book, and I thought this would be a great opportunity to look at it from a different angle. You know, one of the nice things about your book, it's actually a graphic novel. Did did you think that this would be a, a graphic novel at the beginning, or is that something that you just sort of gravitated toward? I kind of always pictured it as uh, an illustrated graphic novel. I thought it could kind of go in two ways. It could be more, you know, spot illustrations like a Randall Monroe book, or it could be like fully illustrated like it ended up being. And the inspiration for that was um, this book called Economics with an X, I-X, Economics, How Our Economy Works and Doesn't Work in Words and Pictures, which is just a fantastic book by Michael Goodwin that's kind of the entire history of economics that's fully graphic. And it just has this whimsy about it that makes these, you know, otherwise dry concepts pretty entertaining and fun. And so 
I thought that would be a great way to provide humor and satire, have kind of jokes as it goes along, because my natural writing is probably a little more on the satirical comedic side. And so I thought that would be a nice balance for something that can get pretty heavy, especially towards the end of the book. <laughs> towards the end of the world, uh, it's sort of <laughs> where it ends up. Now, this is a topic, when people write about it, it comes off sort of dry and also alarming. And it's easy to sort of be overwhelmed by the dire nature of it. One of the things that you, you do in the book is you kind of identify the forces that are kind of at play here corporations, you know, political parties, people with money that are using the, the communication system in various ways to manipulate people. So tell me about the growth in your understanding of what was going on as you were researching this book. Did you have a thesis from the beginning or did you sort of develop one as you, as you moved forward? Well, I feel like a lot of the content I was kind of writing about prior in like, you know, the last 10 years or so, maybe 15 years, I guess I've been very interested in inequality and socioeconomics and how much that's changed over the last, you know, half century. And so that was kind of, um, you know, something I was reading a lot about. I read a lot, like I go through tons of books. So I'm just, yeah, a fountain of information that nobody really wants to hear about. But anyway, so like the intersection, I guess, of inequality and economics with not only my background in journalism and media, but also the stories we tell ourselves, the narratives we live by, the stories that people are able to sell us <laughs> to get to believe stuff. And so, you know, the book ends up kind of being a combination of all of these things. But the book starts off, the focus is more about, you know, kind of a crash course in media literacy, I guess. And that's kind of the lens that I, you know, want the reader to see all these things through because I don't feel like, as a society, we differentiate media consumption from media literacy, and they're not the same things. We consume a ton of media. You know, we're bombarded by like 4,000 to 10,000 media messages a day, yet it's harder and harder to determine what's news and what's entertainment. When I was in school, you know, we studied journalism alongside advertising, marketing, public relations, publicity, as if they're like all equal, but they're really not. And I think the last few years have really made us realize how different they are. You know, only journalism is really concerned with getting to the truth. The rest are usually trying to obscure it. So we tend to have a pretty narrow view of each type of mass communication, like marketing, advertising, publicity, whatever. And one of the goals with the book is to get readers to see each of these types of mass communication with the wider lens. You know, for instance, we think of marketing as promoting a new film or advertising a new sports stream. But you know, it's not just that. It's responsible for getting us to celebrate Valentine's Day or buying a diamond ring when we get engaged or taking a coffee break at work instead of a tea break or even the notion that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. You know, these were all ideas that did not exist until successful marketing campaigns came along and sold us these ideas. And so I think it it's super helpful for us to recognize so many of the things we see each day and we take for granted as identifying them correctly, because until we can properly distinguish between them, everything may look like news when it's not. And I don't think you get, get a better example of, of like a marketing plan is, you know, make America great again. You know, that's something that's both specific, but, you know, vague enough 
to not to not really right. say that I promise this. Yeah. Well, it's a slogan, and the thing you know, and that's like another section of the book is branding slogans. Like "Make America Great Again" is you know, it's what advertisers would call like glittering generalities. Like it's so vague to basically be meaningless. It's you know anything with like best, new, improved, and you know great again. Like it you know it means something different to everybody. It's not really saying anything. But branding slogans are important because that's, you know, how you're distinguishing yourself from the competition. So in that case, it is a branding slogan to differentiate a politician from, you know, other politicians. But it's no different than have it your way from Burger King or the ultimate driving machine from BMW. Like, they're all branding slogans. And, you know, it's important to identify this as a slogan because, Make America Great Again, actually, pull up and tell you exactly where that came from. You know, it's not like this was, you know, just arbitrarily chosen, you know, like there's a reason he's using that slogan and it's because of the history of that slogan. It basically goes back to Reagan used it in 1980 and Arthur J. Finkelstein, you know, he worked on Reagan's campaign and he also advised Trump. and he was a high ranking member of Reagan's marketing team and he worked with Trump in the mid 2000s and he trademarked the slogan, make America great again in November, 2012. So it was always designed to be used with Trump. And, you know, at the time, back in the 1980s, it was kind of a dog whistle for basically make America white again, you know, like was the underlying meaning. And that type of language has always been used by politicians. You know, Nixon had a slogan, bring our country back. And, you know, what were you bringing the country back from? Well, it's from all of the turmoil of the civil rights era, where, you know, all of a sudden blacks were granted the same rights as whites. And, you know, Nixon's base was to appeal to these aggrieved white voters. And so, you know, this has kind of been a recurring theme as a dog whistle to speak to people on the subconscious level. You know, what does make America great again mean for a lot of the people that believe it? Yeah, you know, it's it, there's a psychology to it and a lot of marketing strategy behind it. It's all harkening back to, you know, your youth or, or when things seemed simpler, that things were safer, that you didn't, you know, that weren't challenging you or replacing you. You know, what do you see are the forces that, that are sort of grouped against the common man or woman in this, this struggle. So to me, there's kind of like, you know, there are two different types of forces at play and it's propaganda and conspiracy theories. So conspiracy theories for the most part, usually come from the powerless where propaganda comes from the powerful. So, you know, conspiracy theories are usually, they come from people who are trying to find patterns and order in a world that seems like it's in disarray. You know, it's about fulfilling a psychological need to explain events in a way that's emotionally satisfying in a way that maybe reality isn't. So, you know, momentous events must have equally momentous explanations, hence the conspiracy. You know, like JFK couldn't have just been killed by a random crazy person. Like he's too important, you know, <laughs> but any, you know, Joe on the corner killed by a random crazy person, maybe it would be fine. But for someone important, there needs to be an important explanation. So, you know, it's about kind of needing to feel secure about the absolute randomness of the world. And so that's kind of the, how conspiracy theories like are usually generated. Whereas propaganda is usually coming from very powerful interests because 
propaganda is basically, you know, any information that's biased or misleading. So it's something used to promote a particular point of view, usually one that benefits, you know, big business or further some political agenda. But in the simplest of terms, propaganda is trying to sell us something, <laughs> you know, whether it's anacid or anti-Semitism. And the word propaganda comes from the church. It literally means spreading the faith. And that's the problem with propaganda is it's selling us ideas that someone wants us to take on faith. And more often than not, they're usually BS. So whether it's, you know, some snake oil, homeopathic remedy, or the belief that global warming is a hoax. Either way, those are the same thing. Someone with power is benefiting by us buying those beliefs. The other aspect of that, I guess it sort of touches on this is, you know, how do you activate that base? How do you activate the people who sort of bought into whatever your your marketing plan is? I mean, it's not just so much that you get your attention, is that you're able to sort of motivate them to do things. And I know one of the things that frustrates a lot of people is the sort of divided nature of our political debate right now and how easy it is to sort of, you know, break people into factions and then manipulate those factions you know, to storm the Capitol or, or to protest something. Is this sort of a factor? And is this something you sort of talk about in the book? Oh, uh, yeah. You know, the information silos, you know, something like that just would not have been possible if we didn't have propaganda outlets, <laughs> like reinforcing these messages. The media used to be very different back during Nixon's time. And, you know, when Nixon during Watergate the general public wasn't necessarily on board right away with getting rid of Nixon. You know, it took several months for them to kind of come around, but it was after constant media exposure. And the media were pretty well in agreement because most of the media at that time were what we define now as more traditional journalism. And that's not what we have. There was like um, a memo that circulated in the Nixon White House where they thought and even some of Nixon supporters thought that him being ousted was more of a PR issue. <laughs> like they just needed to be able to have a media outlet that could spin PR and basically fight the facts that were coming out. And, you know, it was called a plan for putting the GOP on the news or something like that. And like Roger Ailes had his hands on it. And, you know, the goal was if they could have their own propaganda outlet, they could keep another Nixon from being impeached. And that's, you know, essentially what became Fox News, which I would probably say is one of the most mainstream propaganda outlets there are for a variety of reasons, but not just that most of their stuff is opinion and they're, you know, only like 10% of their statements are based in fact, but they're creating an alternate reality that people believe is true. And, you know, it has news in the name. And again, that's like an example of branding. <laughs> Calling it news is branding it news. It doesn't mean it's actually news. And so because we have so many media outlets now that aren't just partisan, they're partisan in a way that they're creating their own realities. And that's what's really dangerous to democracy because no one is held accountable anymore for anything. You basically say whatever you want. I mean, a lot of times they're speaking hate into existence. And I feel like that's what's happened a lot, especially when it revolves around Trump. Not only are they speaking the hate into existence, but when the hate is acted on in public, you know, the people lighting the, the fire are not held accountable. And so I don't know how you course correct when you're basically allowing media to yell fire in a crowded theater when there's no fire. Yeah. 
I think about this in a bunch of different ways. Like more recently, you know, just watching the different commentators on, on YouTube, the clips from the different shows on YouTube, and you sort of begin to see that this is not just a, a right wing thing. There's a similar, you know, movement on the other side of the, of the aisle when there were, you know, if there still is an aisle, that they're creating angst within their base. They're reinforcing certain perceptions in their base to keep, you know, this sort of division going on. Yeah, I mean, everybody can be responsible for it. I use Fox News as an example. Because oh, no, no, and I'm not trying to give them a, a, a free pass, but it's just something yeah. I've noticed. Because they probably have the most eyeballs yeah. of everyone. You know, they're driving the conversation. For sure, for sure. One of the things I wanted to, to talk about was all these sort of mea culpas that we had after the 2016 election. Some of the reactions that came out of that, you know, movements for greater media literacy, getting that taught in schools, this idea of establishing fact-checking teams to, you know, the checks of facts of uh, officials when they say things and call out lies. The idea that the way to combat lies is with more truth. You know, what are your thoughts about that and that sort of approach? Yeah, you know, it's, I don't think there's the will or the ability to ever try to regulate the airwaves again, like we did with the Fairness Doctrine, which, you know, you had to put both sides of an issue up or give equal airtime, you know, to the opposing viewpoint. And so I do think there are things you can do in the media. There are things you can do without, you know, reinstating a new fairness doctrine. I think, again, if you hold people accountable, if someone says something on a media airwave and someone in public acts on that, then, you know, why wouldn't you hold them accountable? If the person says, this is why they did it. I think that, you know, like, other countries don't allow political attack ads, most of them. So there are things, you know, we could regulate and do. It's just the people that benefit from these things aren't going to want them. And so there's a challenge with trying to, you know, correct or fix some of the media in that respect. The one thing we can do is, right, try to educate people about, you know, distinguishing news from entertainment, distinguishing the types of mass communication, if a newscaster has emotion in their voice <laughs> or they're eliciting or inciting an emotion in you, then they're not news. Emotion is the trade of actors. <laughs> actors trade emotion. Actors are paid to convey emotion. And so when you have a news anchor who's irate and complaining about something and directing your anger at someone, then they're not a newscaster. You know, they're an actor. And so, you know, emotional awareness, I think, is part of it you know, media literacy, emotional awareness, and critical thinking in general, questioning beliefs, trying to not just look at the other sides of something, but things that we take for granted, long-held beliefs we've had, recognizing that, like, we should be questioning these things, you know, tax cuts stimulating the economy, guns make us safer, you know, like, this is PR and marketing, you know, those aren't solutions, those are just like slogans. And so, making people aware, helping people discern when they're hearing, when they're being sold something. And so, and you know, that goes back to media literacy and critical thinking, which, you know, are the aims or the hopes of the book in teaching people, you know, how to do both and how so much of what we, you know, just believe to be true is either a myth or a remnant of an old marketing campaign or whatever. There are things that the media can do or the politicians should be doing to curb some of the media abuse. Although 
you know, what do you do for online? You know, does it infringe on freedom of speech? That's just such a big hurdle. I don't know, and I don't know what you do these days. Not amplifying those voices are probably one of the best things. Yeah, barring people who go against the <laughs> the terms of service. You know, being a company that have a terms of service that that you're powerful and successful enough so that you, you know, losing that particular segment of your audience or that you may lose because you, you make a certain choice and sort of standing up to it. Again, it's not, you know, it's not the imposition of a, a law or the government. It's actual, actually, <laughs> it's another side of marketing. You know, how does this affect your image? Do you want to be known as the platform that allowed this? Do you want, want to be the platforms associated with, with this right. type of hate? Which is why it's so important that these whistleblowers are coming out, you know, because they're making these problems, you know, they're shining light on them and making us realize just how much the social media companies knew of the damage they were doing, but just chose not to act because, you know, that's easier and cheaper. Yeah, it's interesting because the individual, the politician who can go on, say, Twitter and you know say whatever they want to say and then when you call them out on it they don't care because their base supports that it's funny that there's nothing particularly that's stopping them from saying that and not necessarily there should be something that's stopping them from saying that but when it comes to the the platform that they're using where it can sort of infringe on their their pocketbook on how much their how many bitcoins they have as it were that's the thing that's going to motivate the, at the end of the day that you know how is it going to negatively impact a company's bottom line. Right. And, you know, again, you know, sunlight is always the best. Dis the best <laughs> exactly right. And so, exactly right. you know, the, you know, most whistleblowers are whistleblowers for a reason. And so if they're driven by their conscience, they're trying to alert us to something. And so I think it's very important to heed those messages and to hold those companies accountable to do something about it, especially when they're aware of the problem, because, you know, Though you mentioned marketing, like, you know, that's the thing is that like the company's answer a lot of times is just a PR campaign that makes them look favorable again, <laughs> but that's not a solution. Like I see all of these Facebook ads constantly about our meta ads about, you know, like, oh, we care, we're protecting your privacy and we're doing and it's like, yeah, that's not really what's happening, but okay. Like you're spinning this, but are you doing anything about it? And so separating the PR from the reality. One of the things that I found most enlightening in the, like the final, or at least the final, the, the last, as of this point, January 6th hearing that they televised was them interviewing the, the people who were in the White House communication staff and arguing about what is the message they're putting out? Mm -hmm. You know, is this on brand? Is this the message that we're, that we want to be associated with? And some people, it wasn't the message they wanted to be associated with. Yeah. I read something, one of the books on the, you know, the Trump presidency, they were talking about how, you know, one of the biggest problems with the administration is that they treated every problem as if it were a PR problem instead of handling crises and dealing with problems or trying to solve the problems. Everything was handled as if it was PR, you know, how do we spin this? How do we make ourselves look better? You know, especially COVID. COVID is the perfect example. You know, for the longest time, they didn't acknowledge the problem. They didn't try to solve it. It was all PR. And that just speaks a lot to a reality 
TV show person in the Oval Office. It speaks a lot to just where we are in this day and age that, you know, everything's about image and PR. Yeah, it just encapsulates so much that's wrong with life right now. I don't necessarily think this is something that just suddenly occurred. I think we've seen this at other points in our history. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's always been, yes, I totally agree. It's just that that seemed to be driving everything in the Trump White House. Yeah. No, if, if somebody wants to watch some old movies, you know, obviously Network, but also uh, Facing the Crowd with Andy Griffith, you know, 1950s movie where they're talking about helping a politician craft the language that's going to change his image so that the masses would be able to embrace whatever radical idea he had. Yeah, it's still with us. Anyway, Samuel, thanks for coming on the podcast. I encourage people to pick up your book. Again, could you give the title? Sure. How to Win the War on Truth, an Illustrated Guide to How Mistruths Are Sold, Why They Stick, and How to Reclaim Reality. And since it ends with reclaiming reality, that means that's a positive message, I guess. Anyway, thanks for being on, Samuel. Oh, thank you for having me. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>